let's start by talking about Janos Buda. That's a really startling story. That, by the way, is Joe Fiorito. He was a city columnist at the Toronto Star for nearly two decades. But back to Janos. Janos Buda was a, a painter. He left Hungary during the revolution and wound up in Canada. And he's in several museums in Europe and, and, and a couple in Canada. But he kind of fell by the wayside. Some of Janos's paintings were displayed in the Hungarian National Gallery and in other august European museums. And what he loved to paint most were the people of Toronto, the city that had taken him in. When he retired, he was going out painting, doing watercolors at every outdoor art event in the city. Janos lived in St. Jamestown, in a social housing project owned by the Toronto Community Housing Corporation. Janos didn't have much money, and what little he did, he spent on art supplies. He had a, a coat that had all kinds of pockets in it for water and paints and paintbrushes, and, and he was doing all these sketches. And he was a pretty solitary guy. He didn't really go anywhere except to the Scarborough uh, Community Arts Centre. And he didn't interact much with his neighbours. And eventually, nobody saw him, and people forgot about him, and... He died in his apartment and wasn't found for six months. So let that sink in. You're living in a community with other people in an organization run by you and I, who are the taxpayers, and somebody dies and isn't found for six months? How the hell does that happen? When Joe heard about Janusz's story, he went to St. Jamestown. I heard about this, and I made an arrangement to meet one of the community housing staff there, and I was prepared to crawl up and down her. And she came down the elevator, and she looked quite literally like she had seen a ghost, because in fact she had. She had just discovered another person who had died and hadn't been found for six months. This person lived next to a garbage chute, so nobody had even noticed the smell. Now, if you're on his floor, or if you're in his building, or if you're in community housing anywhere, and you hear that somebody who is in your circumstances has died and nobody missed him, how do you feel? Do you feel safe? No. You feel terror. People absorb that terror into their daily life. People know it could happen to them. It makes them feel insecure. It makes them feel more vulnerable. The Toronto Community Housing Corporation is the biggest landlord in Canada and the second biggest in all of North America. But so many of the hundreds of thousands of residents live with that kind of fear. More than 110,000 people live in Toronto community housing. That's nearly four out of every 100 people in the city. But government after government has allowed social housing in Toronto to fall apart. It's not just the buildings that they've let rot, it's also our moral obligation to the most vulnerable in our society. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. 
Joe Fiorito's approach to journalism is simple. My ear. I use my ear. So when he was given a column in the Toronto Star in the early 2000s, that's what he did. I wanted to hear from people who normally didn't get a chance to have their views heard. So I listened. And when you listen, people will tell you the most intimate truths about their lives. That's, that's what I wanted to put in the paper. And it wasn't long before his ear became attuned to what people in Toronto community housing were saying. And community housing population is, if you look at it as a whole, among the most complicated populations in the city. The wide age differences, wide physical and mental abilities differences, terrific ethnic range, terrific language range, with all of the attendant complications that that brings. And it's the housing of last resort for some people, but it's the housing of only resort for some people. One day, Joe got a call from a woman who lived in community housing. It would lead him to the story that he says will probably be etched on his tombstone. The bedbugs. She began to tell me this long, shaggy, doggy kind of story about how she had been bitten in her apartment by these bugs, and she thought they were bed bugs. And she went to the hospital because her arms swelled up, and she got dizzy, and she collapsed. And she told him that when she got home, she smelled gasoline. Joe couldn't quite follow along with what she was saying, so he decided to pay her a visit. When she got home, her friend came to visit her. They smelled gasoline, certainly on her floor. Uh, They called somebody from building maintenance. That person came up. They followed their noses down the corridor to where the smell of gas was strongest, and there was a door that was slightly open. They opened the door, and there's a guy sitting there washing his body with gasoline. What? He was washing his body with gasoline because his skin itched so badly from bug bites. So instantly, my head is swirling. Like, there's something going on in this building here. A few months earlier, a few of the tenants in the building had complained about bed bugs, but nothing was done about the problem. By the time Joe got to the scene, 11 of the 17 floors were infested. Joe wrote about the building, and then he started to get the calls. Hundreds. Hundreds from all over the city. And many of them led back to Toronto community housing. I remember going to see once some poor old bugger. He was um, clearly, uh, he had Alzheimer's of some sort, and he was sitting on his couch, and there were bugs crawling up and down his arms. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, if you're in community housing, and if you're in that kind of shape, that you don't recognize. And sometimes mental illness of various kinds plays a role in this, that people absorb that into their daily living. It becomes kind of normalized. Well, that's when I learned about bed bug anemia, where people get bitten so much and they lose so much blood that, that they become anemic. Well, my concern in all of this was that if you've got a vulnerable population, you have to address their vulnerabilities directly. And it wasn't being done for the longest time in a way that was at all effective. It was near impossible for many residents to get TCHC to pay attention to their bed bugs. They'd put in calls, but oftentimes nothing would happen. And it wasn't just pests they had to deal with. Repairs wouldn't be done for months or years. There were leaks and floods and fires. Elevators would break and hot water would stop. So how was it? 
that Toronto community housing got to this state. While the first housing projects as we know them today were constructed in the 1940s and 50s, the very first one in Canada was Regent Park, built on the east side of Toronto's downtown. Regent Park, Alexandra Park, St. James Town, and other housing projects were built with the best of intentions. The government sincerely wanted to provide good, affordable housing to poor people. But the very way that the buildings were designed soon created problems for residents. Generally, it was not good housing. It was bad housing. And that was a problem. That's John Sewell. He began his career as a lawyer and housing activist in the 1960s, before serving as a city councillor and then eventually as mayor of Toronto. By the time Sewell was working on housing issues, Regent Park was already suffering from all kinds of neglect. There were no through streets. All the streets were dead end. And that meant that the cars were parked in there. And often there were all sorts of derelict cars, which the housing authority didn't remove. Often the repairs to the buildings was at a very low standard, so elevators were always breaking down. Regent Park, like a lot of other housing projects of that era, was basically walled off from the rest of the city, which meant that residents didn't have access to even the most basic city services. It was not related to the street in any way, and that meant that, in fact, the public housing authority looked after its own garbage. And so there are great garbage bins everywhere. Since there weren't public streets, it was the public housing authority, Metro Housing Authority, that actually provided the street lighting, which was often not very good, and the snow plowing, which was often not very good. The government had set out to create a more equitable living situation for the poor, and instead, it ended up isolating them from the rest of the city. So it was a, a sort of a private world that the government was running and not funding very well. Most of the social housing at the time was administered by the provincial government. In the 1970s, the city of Toronto started its own program, and they wanted to learn a lesson from Regent Park. So instead of building large isolated apartment blocks, these were mixed income projects that were integrated into their neighborhoods. And when he was mayor, John Sewell helped oversee that program. In the early 1980s, after he lost re-election, he worked as a journalist at The Globe and continued to report on housing. And a lot of what he was reporting on was the problems in the provincially run Metro Toronto Housing Authority. That was the agency responsible for the vast majority of social housing in the city, all of those big, isolated apartment blocks. The MTHA was itself a subsidiary of the Ontario Housing Authority, but one step removed which was a problem. It didn't have any serious independence. It basically was an excuse by the provincial government to keep its distance from the housing and say, oh no, it's the housing authority that makes all those decisions. Sewell would learn firsthand how difficult that kind of situation could be. I got a call out of the blue asking me if I wanted to be the chair of the Metro Housing Authority. The Metro Toronto Housing Authority had a tendency to find itself in the news for all the wrong reasons. Poor conditions, lack of repairs, the same kinds of problems that Joe Fiorito would see decades later. But what Sewell found when he was hired to be chair was a strangely resigned culture within the organization. The upper management just didn't seem to want to change anything. 
So when I got into the inside, I saw there were all sorts of crazy ideas. Take repairs, for instance. If a tenant had a serious issue, say a leaky toilet, you'd first have to call a central phone line. But that was usually too busy, so you'd leave a message. And even if it got through to someone, the goal for staff was to try to fix it within seven days. Well, you got a leaky toilet. A lot of harm happens within seven days. That was the problem. And I remember trying to say to them, I mean, couldn't we deal with it any other way? No, that, that's the best way to do it. All of that meant small issues became big ones. What starts off as a leaky toilet can quickly become a wet floor, then a dripping ceiling, and maybe even mold. Another problem I realized was if an elevator broke down, well, we weren't allowed to fix the elevators. That was something the, the Ministry of Housing did. Oh, you think that is bizarre. I mean, you know, elevators are critical to most of those buildings. And, you know, we'd have to phone them and they'd say, oh, yeah, we'll get we'll call somebody in a couple of days. You know, it, it, there was no sense of urgency to them. And what he found strangest of all was a low key disdain that some of the upper level management had towards tenants. One day I got called by some tenants and saying, we don't have any hot water. You don't have any hot water, I said. No. How long have you been without it? Well, for two days now. Two days, I said. What's the problem? I don't know. They said a pipe's been broken and they aren't going to be able to fix it for seven or eight months. Oh, come on, I said. He talked to staff who said that they couldn't get it fixed anytime soon. But he pushed and eventually the water was up and running again within two days. And not long after, there was a meeting with residents from the affected building. Sewell went there. And I said, I want to apologize for the fact that you didn't have hot water for three or four days. We got it fixed quickly, but I'm just here to say, sorry about that. These things happen, but now we're okay. He says that the tenants seemed satisfied with his apology. But the staff? That was another matter. Two days later, I got a letter from signed by the, the six major staff members of MTHA saying, you are undermining us by going out and apologizing to residents. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. According to news reports at the time, Sewell was seen as making a lot of headway within the Metro Toronto Housing Authority. Tenants felt that they could approach him, and he was getting things done. Those derelict cars that had been piling up around housing projects he just got them towed. Sewell says he was moving forward on implementing systems that could get repairs done in a fraction of the time. And he was starting to look at redeveloping entire housing projects. I thought that public housing had to be redesigned. It had to be redesigned by putting in streets and making the housing face onto public streets. Because if we could do that, then we could have municipal garbage collection municipal street lighting, municipal snow plowing. I mean, just all the normal things that everybody else has. But when he held community meetings for redevelopment plans to add more units and to change the design so it was easier for people to live in, he was slapped down by the provincial government. I got the letter from the minister saying, you've got to stop doing that. That's not permitted. This idea of redevelopment's not allowed. You're just getting people's hopes up. It was very disappointing, very, very disappointing, to say the least. 
Now, I'm usually uncomfortable praising a politician like this, but by all accounts I could find, Sewell really was popular with tenants, and many did feel that he was accessible, listening to their concerns, and that there was a real sense that things were getting done under his tenure. So as his two-year term as chair was coming to an end, most observers were expecting he would stay in the position. The provincial government had other plans. We don't want you anymore. We will not renew your contract which was a bit of a surprise because I really had kept MTHA out of the news for two years, which was very unusual. (laughs) It's a very difficult organization, but they wanted me to go. The new housing minister asked Liberal Premier David Peterson to turf Sewell, and he did. I kept thinking at the end of it, you know, I thought at the beginning they didn't really want me. <laughs> and then after they not didn't renewed, it's true, they didn't want me. <laughs> Sewell's dismissal became one of the biggest political scandals of the day. I won't get into too many details here, but reporters were able to uncover that the primary reason he was turfed was because of his clashes with an MTCH board member and prominent liberal donor named Patty Starr. Starr, it turned out, had been secretly passing information to a developer to help them secure contracts with the housing authority. She would end up criminally convicted for breach of trust related to the scandal. But none of that mattered much for residents. As the political scandals played out in the headlines, a lot of the changes that Sewell had been implementing were put on the shelf. And so it continued on its course of of not being a government agency that was uh, a benefit to the government and it wasn't much of a benefit to the people who lived in that public housing either. A real pity. Paid for by the Mike Harris Committee. High taxes and spending are killing Ontario jobs. Had enough? I have. I'm Mike Harris. Join our common sense revolution. In 1995, Mike Harris's progressive conservatives came to power in Ontario. Their singular priority was to reduce spending and to lower taxes. And one of the main ways they did that was by offloading the responsibility for housing onto cities and municipalities. The federal government had already gotten out of social housing a few years earlier. Of course, cities don't have the same taxation powers as provinces or the feds. What it's done is it's forced municipalities to bear expenses that they were not really able to bear. The costs of of providing rent subsidies to people is very significant. It's not cheap. By the early 2000s, the city of Toronto was responsible for running three different housing corporations. One for seniors, one that was mixed income, and the former provincial program, which was responsible for tens of thousands of units. What happened is that then Toronto was now responsible for public housing, but it didn't really have the money to run it well. But it also had these other two housing agencies, and it decided to combine them all together into one organization. That is what became the Toronto Community Housing Corporation. And from the get-go, it was a cash-strapped agency. It was around then that Joe Fiorito began writing his column for the Toronto Star. 
Joe wrote about far more than just the TCHC. But time and time again, he returned to the stories people were telling him about public housing. And so many of the issues were compounded by two things. First, the design of the buildings. And then, the fact that many of the people living in TCHC were very vulnerable. Some used drugs, many had issues with their mental health. And what that required was a sensitive approach by the TCHC. But that was often lacking. It has to be approached with a kind of tender creativity and a realistic understanding of the problems that occur. Because the population is vulnerable, because people often don't have anywhere else to turn to for housing. Take, for instance, the bedbugs. Now, bedbugs are a problem everywhere. It doesn't matter if you live in a rich part of town or in social housing, you can get an infestation. But in TCHC housing, they can really get out of control. If you're poor, you don't throw stuff out. If you have broken stuff, you live in the hope that at some point or other you can repair it. You don't get rid of clothing because, you know, you might lose weight or you might gain weight. And in virtually all of the public housing buildings I was ever in, there's a lack of storage. So people bag stuff up and they store them. And it looks to you and me like hoarding. Where you have stuff stored like that, then you have nests for bugs. And because TCHC, as the landlord, needs permission of the tenants to enter their units, it made it difficult to clear out pests, especially for people who had mental health issues. And, you know, you can understand that intellectually, but if somebody's got a problem that is affecting not only everyone around him or her, but everybody else in the building, then there's an obligation to kind of address that somehow. And it tied TCHC into knots. Crime and safety was another major issue. If you're in community housing and somebody approaches you and says, look, I'll give you, you know, the equivalent of a month's rent. If I can use your apartment every afternoon, all you have to do is just go away. You know, somebody's thinking, Jesus Christ, save a month's rent by just having to leave the house. I leave the house anyway. Well, the next thing you know, somebody's using it to sell drugs from. And the next thing you know, people are coming there to use drugs. And the next thing you know, you've got people dying in stairwells. But even the buildings themselves could be unsafe. September 2010, a fire erupted at 200 Wellesley, a large TCHC building in downtown Toronto. Toronto Fire, Chief 31, we've arrived 200 Wellesley. We have flames, flames and uh, smoke showing from the uh, one of the upper floors. Can you uh, make this a second alarm? It grew into a six-alarm blaze. It caused millions of dollars in damages and displaced hundreds of people. It began when a lit cigarette fell on a balcony of a person who was a hoarder. Papers and other objects immediately went up in flames. Now, hoarding could be a danger to a lot of people. But until that fire, little was done about it in the TCHC. After the fire, they brought in a team of people, actually. They would sit down with everybody and go through, do you really need this? How do you use this? This takes time. It takes expert help. Time plus expert help equals money. Well, I'm sorry. The goddamned equation is, where do you want to spend your money? Helping people solve a problem first or dealing with a fire? Which is the, the best way to spend your money? To be proactive rather than reactive. But for residents, it could be extremely difficult to get help from the TCHC. I got a call from a woman one day who, who said, uh, my neighbor stinks. Big deal. 
Everybody in the building knows it. She wanders around. She's got feces all over her clothing, in her hands, in her hair. She wanders around in her nightie. You can see all the stains. And the woman tells me, I've called my city councillor, called my member of parliament. I've called my MPP. I've called the city. I've tried to get her help. Nobody's coming to help. She's done everything right. She's recognized a woman in her building, on her floor, with problems, who smells bad. So Joe went to the building to see what the big deal was. I skipped lunch because I was it was a busy day. I had a bunch of things to do. And it's a good thing I went there on an empty stomach because when I stepped out of the elevator, the woman was in the hallway. And it, it's not just that she smelled. The smell had ripened and re-ripened. And, and it was one of the worst things imaginable. Well, God damn it, th- this woman's in trouble. He couldn't communicate with the woman but he spoke to her neighbors and wrote about it in the Toronto Star. And as soon as our, the column was in the paper, all of a sudden, bingo, everybody's there looking after this woman, taking care of her, making sure she's properly fed, washing her hair, getting her hair permed, cleaning her clothes, cleaning her apartment. That should not require somebody putting up with a problem that's so bad that she ends up having to call the newspaper as a matter of last resort. That should be addressed with right away. Probably the most stark example of bureaucratic cruelty was what happened to Al Gosling. Oh, beloved Al, what a sweetheart. I got a tip from somebody who um, told me that a, a man in his 80s had been evicted from a TCHC apartment in the north end of the city in Arletta Manor. I'm thinking to myself, geez, you know, I'm going to be 80. At some point in my life, I hope. And if I'm living in some place, I sure as hell don't want to be evicted at that age. Al had been living in an apartment where his rent was geared to income. And every year, he had to go sign a form to declare what that income was. But Al was on a pension. His income was the same every year. I'm like Al. I'm a little crusty. I get mail that I don't give a shit about, and I toss it. Al was getting these letters saying, you've got to fill out these forms. He was throwing them away. People did get in touch with him. Al, you got to fill out these forms. And he'd say, you know what? Nothing's changed in my life for the last 10 years. Why the hell do I have to keep filling out forms? The letters were also confusing, sometimes contradictory. But no human being spoke to Al to explain to him how serious the situation was or to try to help him out. He had the money after all. It was just a matter of some paperwork. He had had the habit of going down to the supermarket on Front Street and having a cup of coffee, getting the paper and coming back home. He'd get a couple of meals, you know, like a frozen microwave meals and come home again. And he came back home one day and his his place, they changed the locks. Al had nowhere to go. He didn't know what to do. So he just tried to stay in the building. He lived under the stairwell for about a week. What? People saw him. People who knew him saw him. They'd ask him if he was okay. He'd say, yeah, I'm sorry. He's not okay. Sleeping under the goddamn stairwell. But no one did anything. Al Gosling, at 82 years old, was on his own. Eventually, he wound up in a shelter. Now, Toronto shelters can be pretty rough if you're vulnerable. Toronto shelters can be pretty rough if you're in your 80s. He wasn't long before he wound up with an infection that sent him to the hospital. Joe went down to meet him. He thought he was going to get better. I thought he was going to get better. 
One of the few times I went to see TCHC Brass, and I just said to the guy who was responsible for this, what if that's your father? What if that's my father? What if that's my uncle? How can, how can you in conscience kick somebody onto the curb like that just because he's cranky and crusty and when he didn't want to fill this form in, why didn't somebody help him? What are you going to do about it? Well, I don't know. Why don't you give him his apartment back? Okay. Once again, it took an outsider intervening to get something to happen. So I made an appointment to go see Al. I saw him on a Friday. I said, Al, they're going to let you back in. His face lit up. He couldn't believe it. He was so happy. And I was going to go visit him with him and, and, and go with him as he moved back in. He died that weekend. The city held an inquiry into Al's eviction and his death, led by Justice Patrick Lesage. Joe was impressed by the care and tenderness with which Lesage took on the work. And he went and he held his meetings in the buildings where people were the most vulnerable, and he listened. And he came up with um, a really beautiful report that established somebody whose job it would be to examine every single case that came up like Al's so that the, the, the most vulnerable elderly would never be in that position again. Uh, and I think 84 other recommendations, which essentially amounted to do your damn job. But residents still have a hard time getting the TCHC to do their jobs. My name is Susan Gapka. I use she and her pronouns, elle français. I'm a longtime community and political activist. Susan has lived in Toronto community housing for 15 years, and she knows her way around a bureaucracy. So when her neighbors need some help, she goes right to the top. In our building, they did repairs on the door. This is something recent. And uh, I used to just send an email to the manager of facilities. They could fix it or the acting CEO or the other woman there who was very responsive. And I can get an answer. I can get something fixed in a couple of days. It shouldn't be like that. There should be structures in place where tenants can bring concerns forward at a community level and they go up to you know, the intermediate level. Susan and other tenants have been fighting for better conditions in the TCHC for a very long time. They've lobbied various levels of government for more money, for repairs, and occasionally they do get it. Well, one of my proud moments from all three levels of governments over a succession of budgets and years, um, we were able to get some money, but it wasn't enough. Over $300,000. And Susan believes that tenant activism is one of the few things that can get politicians and decision makers to sit up and pay attention to TCHC residents. But our strength was we'd do media events and we'd bring in like broken plumbing, stories from tenants, the tiles falling down uh, as they're using the washroom and things like that. We've had so much turnover on the board and the political sphere, but throughout it all, we're still tenants in social housing and uh, they need to listen to us. Just like in John Sewell's era, the Toronto Community Housing Corporation has experienced immense political turmoil over the last 10 years. There have been six CEOs just in the last decade, 
Many of them were turfed over spending scandals, HR violations, or conflicts of interest. Some of the CEOs had strange ideas. Gene Jones, who was brought on by Rob Ford, wanted to incentivize residents to call the police on their neighbors who'd committed crimes. They did things like uh, rewarded tenants and communities who, who turned in the people who were committing some crimes. And they got like fences and safety. And it was like, you just can't reward that kind of behavior. That's not what social housing is about. Susan says that with the help of tenants, the TCHC has made some improvements over the last 10 years. But people are still dissatisfied. Tenant complaints to the Toronto Ombudsman Office have more than doubled since 2015. Hundreds of residents have been kicked out of their homes because TCHC allowed the buildings to fall into such disrepair that they were too dangerous to live in. And evictions for extremely vulnerable people still happen. Five families were evicted from their homes during the second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of them ended up in a shelter. And the pandemic puts at risk even the few fragile gains that have been made. Tenant engagement is down, and a lot of repairs haven't been done over the last year. Everything has been on hold for the last 15, 16 months. Various levels of government have pitched in money to help with the repair backlog. But Toronto Community Housing, like so many similar institutions across the country, is still dangerously underfunded. TCHC hired Jag Sharma to be the new CEO just last week. And Susan says that his focus should be on tenants. I'd like to see the new CEO make a public, vigorous commitment to reviving tenant engagement. We know best what's going on in our neighborhoods and communities. John Sewell thinks that the TCHC actually has a lot of opportunities right now if they're willing to take them. And he thinks that the most obvious place to start is to redevelop community housing projects. Well, what I would do is I would try and create plans for redeveloping 20 or 25 projects right away. And we're going to increase the amount of housing in every single project that we're doing. You can significantly increase the number of housing units that you've got. My theory is that on that land, you can build at least 20,000 units of housing, of which a lot can be affordable housing. Joe Fiorito hasn't been on the housing beat for a few years now. But he knows that TCHC residents deserve far better. Damn the people in this town who think that those who are living in community housing are freeloaders. I'm really sorry. People are living in housing not because they're freeloaders, but because that's what their circumstances dictate. Nobody, nobody lives like that because they want to. It's supposed to be the open hand and, and the open heart of our, of our city. It's supposed to be the help that we give to the most vulnerable. Joe still thinks often of Al Gosling, the 82-year-old man who died after the TCHC evicted him. It still kind of breaks my heart, that story, because I recognized me in him, and I recognized in him every other vulnerable person in the system. Alongside being a journalist and a novelist, Joe Fiorito is a poet. He wrote a poem about Gosling. It's called My Pal Al. We asked him to read it for us. 
to the market once a week for a week of frozen mini meals, a coffee, and the paper. In a puddle of daylight on a white arborite, he tore his star into long, thin strips. Nobody reads the news on my dime. He was the news when he came home. New lock, no key, no microwave, no plastic fork and spoon, no coffee pot, no cot. In a stairwell, blue-eyed, rough, he said he was, until he was not well enough. CCHC is a massive bureaucracy and one of the most important institutions in the city of Toronto. And while policies need to change, leadership needs to be more engaged, what matters most is our societal attitude to the people who live in those buildings. Do we care enough to help give them the support they need to make their lives better? I have met and worked with alongside some of the most difficult people, but also some of the strongest, warm-hearted, determined people. These are people who need a hand up or have somehow been born into a situation. Single mothers, racialized people, hardworking people in very difficult conditions. I just wanna really recognize so many people that are housed in Toronto community housing that add to the substance and fabric of the city. And we should love them, protect them, and ensure that we all have a decent place to live. And taking care of the most vulnerable is our collective responsibility. This is a wound that shouldn't heal. We should always pay attention to it. We shouldn't just sort of forget about it. We should always be attentive to the needs of, of the people who are the most vulnerable in our midst. We should never, ever take that for granted. We should never think that, oh, they've got a place. What the hell are they complaining about? We should always take extra care. Bureaucracies don't do that very well, but that should be the first job. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Joe Fiorito, Noor Javed, Donovan Vincent, Emily Matthew, Jennifer Pagliero, and Victoria Gibson, all of the Toronto Star, Jamie Bradburn, and many, many others. There's a lot of excellent reporting out there about the TCHC, and I urge you to seek it out. We didn't have a chance to touch on the issues that residents have with the Toronto police, but you should all look up the case of the Neptune 4. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. 
You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish with additional production by Dami Lola Oname. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.